There's an author that spoke not too long here in Auburn, Phil Hesser, and he likened it to a vortex and that you can still kind of feel that energy where these titans of change were here and they were doing things for the good of others. And I am a true believer that you can still feel that energy here in Auburn. One of the most powerful things about Harriet Tubman's life and legacy is the way she put community at the center of everything she did. She believed in the power of the collective and had a deep, enduring love for her people. Harriet poured into the community of Auburn, and in return, the community poured into her. Welcome to Walk in Her Footsteps, Harriet Tubman's Life in Auburn, New York, a series exploring Harriet Tubman's life after slavery in her chosen home in the North. I'm Bianca Lewis, an entrepreneur and ambassador for Cayuga Tourism here in Auburn. In this episode, we'll dive into the people and places that shaped Harriet's life in Auburn, starting at 180 South Street, the home Harriet Tubman lived in with her family until her death in 1913. Today, the Tubman home is a modest two-story brick house. It's about 1,200 square feet, just a bit smaller than the average home in the United States today. It's surrounded by a halo of tall, lush trees with a wooden barn at the rear. Harriet Tubman bought the home and the acres of land surrounding it in 1859 from the wife of Senator William H. Seward, Francis Seward. So I first came to know the Sewards really by reading their mail which sounds voyeuristic, uh, but that's what historians do. That's Dr. Jeff Ludwig, Director of Education at the Seward House Museum in Auburn. The Sewards were Harriet's neighbors, and today their home is a museum and educational center. They lived just a mile from Harriet in a large two-story brick house with four symmetrical windows on each side of the main door, typical of the Federalist-style homes of the time. Jeff says that Harriet and the Sewards probably connected to one another through the networks of the abolitionist movement, in which they were active participants. So best estimate, I think, is that they became aware of each other, William Seward, Francis Seward, and Harriet Tubman, first by reputation, probably mid-1850s, sort of the heyday, the peak of Harriet Tubman's time as a conductor on the Underground Railroad. She's making all these perilous journeys, 13 in total, from her native eastern shore of Maryland in an enslaved state through the north and across into Canada. This is the part of Harriet Tubman's life and story that most people know. And these journeys weren't just dangerous, they were also really, really expensive. You're feeding for, you're arranging transportation for, you're clothing, you're sometimes needing medicines and supplies for. People from all walks of life, very young, very old, and not just sort of healthy young people. So how exactly did Harriet foot the bill? She would make money by going on the abolitionist speaking circuit. Harriet was only about five foot two with a debilitating head injury from childhood. And she would get up in front of these big audiences of abolitionist elites to recount stories from her time on the Underground Railroad, the horrors of slavery, and whatever else was on her mind. She spoke truth to power and didn't minimize how brutal and violent the institution of slavery was. But still, she made people laugh. She was charming, witty, and a -a one-of-a-kind orator. She used that power to push her audiences to action 
urging them to donate generously to fund her liberation work. And it was really effective. After hearing her powerful, moving lectures, people wanted to support her and her work. And two of those people were the Sewards. It's probable that William Seward came to know of her as she's giving radical lectures. He's also swimming in those waters, he and his wife both. She more than he, the abolitionist, but they have acquaintances and friends in common. So they're never really more than one degree of separation apart. The question then is when does that one degree break down and there's a direct contact, direct connection? I have been trying to answer that question for the better part of five years. There's a lot of inferring, a lot of reading between the lines, a lot of trying to, to disentangle myth and lore from truth and reality. So there's no sort of hard and fast source. In fact, to scour the Seward papers, references to Harriet Tubman, you're not going to come up empty, but you're only going to come up with a handful. And they're, they're not laden with long descriptions or, or analysis or anecdotes. There's almost a business-like quality to them, which is strange. Even though historians like Jeff can't say for sure when Harriet Tubman met the Sewards, what's certain is that the two families quickly became important figures in each other's lives. Over time, William and Frances became Harriet's allies in Auburn and a part of her growing community of black and white Auburnians committed to liberation and justice. William Seward was a prominent politician He served in the New York State Senate and was the state's governor. He then became a U.S. senator and eventually would be appointed President Abraham Lincoln's Secretary of State. Frances, on the other hand, was the daughter of a well-established Cayuga County judge, an active participant in the women's suffrage movement, and a dedicated abolitionist. When Frances's father passed away, Frances and her sister inherited his estate. And what does Frances decide to do with it? She sees uh, passed in New York in 1848 a property rights bill that allows married women to own property within a marriage. The Married Woman's Property Act. Before that law, any woman who got married surrendered all her property, a lot of her legal identity and agency to her husband who would control it. After 1848, France is able to inherit her father's vast estate, which would include a seven-acre farm, later purchased for $25 down by Harriet Tubman. She doesn't need anybody's permission to do this. She's an activist. She's grassroots. At this point, Harriet is growing more and more concerned for the well-being of her aging parents, Benjamin Ross and Harriet Green, who she called Ben and Rit. She had managed to get them to safety in St. Catharines, Canada, where they were living in a community of other emancipated Black folks, many who were also from the eastern shore of Maryland. But even still, the harsh Canadian winter wasn't ideal for Ben and Ritt. So Harriet set out to secure a home for them back in the States, in a community where she knows that they will be supported and feel some semblance of safety. So when Harriet Tubman is looking for a forever home after the war, a little bit further south in Canada, Auburn is amenable because the Sewards are here, yes, but there are also people from her part of the eastern shore of Maryland Many of these families migrate here because there's land available for sale. The Seward family would do business on good terms with working class, immigrant, and African-American communities in Auburn. So these connections just keep rippling out. There were familiar faces there. Of course, Harriet knew Auburn wasn't perfect. No place was. But at least here, she knew she had a circle of friends and comrades, black and white, who supported her and could also support her family. 
In spring of 1859, the Sewards sold Harriet Tubman a house, barn, and seven acres of tillable farmland right down the street from their own home. They sold it to her for $1,200, which would be almost $43,000 today. The terms of the mortgage were flexible, allowing Harriet to put down $25 for the home, about $900 in today's currency, with $10 payments. That would be about $350 today, due every quarter. At first, it was only Harriet's parents and her brother John who had been caring for their parents living in the home. Harriet wouldn't live in the home full-time until after the end of the Civil War. But once she did start living there, the home was never empty. It grew fuller and fuller with Tubman's extended family and others that Harriet took in. She takes people in, boarders, those who are in need, mostly people of color. Eventually, she'll basically almost bankrupt herself trying to pay for a home for the aged and the infirm. She takes in maybe distant relations, and she cares for everybody. And she makes it her mission to exhaust herself traveling Auburn to fundraise, much as she had once done throughout New England, to pay for everything she needs to care for this large sort of collected family of her choosing. This is the place that would become Harriet's home base, the place where she would meet and fall in love with her second husband, Nelson Davis, a longtime resident who stayed in the Tubman home for three years. This home would also be the place where Harriet and Nelson would raise their adopted daughter, Gertie, and so much more. Harriet's home was a safe place for her, her family, and loved ones to heal, rest, and exist. Aside from providing Harriet and the Black community in Auburn at large with the resources to build homes, churches, and community spaces in the city, Francis opened up the Seward home as a stop on the Underground Railroad. The home was a place of temporary refuge, safety, and comfort for Black people seeking liberation. Francis had connections. She had a friend and a servant named Harriet Bogart. Her husband Nicholas was a driver for the Seward family, and it, at least the legend, and again, hard to separate legend from lore, is that Harriet Bogart was sort of Francis's person on the inside of Auburn's lived Black community in the 1850s who would perhaps know or receive intelligence or reports or whispers of when to expect arrivals in the Underground Railroad. Francis probably would have received intelligence from women like Harriet Bogart, when to expect arrivals, or often not, just a knock at the end of night as darkness was falling and, and the sun was rising, there could be passengers who traveled through rugged and dangerous terrain, perhaps pursued by bounty hunters or others. They would hide by day here, be fed, be given supplies, provisions they would need. And when the coast was clear, back on the road again, going ever further north. This was very dangerous. It was in violation of federal law. The family could have been imprisoned, heavily fined, for sure. It could have doomed Seward's own political career in Washington. Jeff says passengers on the Underground Railroad who stopped at the Seward home would have stayed in the family's basement, which was formerly a kitchen and dining area. It's kind of sacred space. It's very hollowed down there. And to walk down there today is to get a sense of what it had been like back then. The hearth, the beehive oven. There's still bars in the wall from the pioneer era. It looks, it feels, it smells like it did back then. Black people heading north would have hid and rested in the basement kitchen until it was safe to continue. By this point, William Seward is elected to the U.S. Senate 
and traveling often to Washington, D.C., and other states in the country, would have likely been Frances and her daughter Fanny who received the passengers and provided them with food, supplies, and shelter. While Frances and Fanny supported Harriet's work with the Underground Railroad by taking in passengers, William Seward supported her work in another way, financially. Even at the end of the Civil War, when Harriet's journeys on the Underground Railroad came to an end, she was still always in need of money to fund her community work. There's a great story of Seward in his later years when Tubman came to him for money. This wasn't uncommon. She was taking care of so many people who could not take care of themselves that Seward said, of course, I'll give you money, but I'm really, I insist that you keep some of this for yourself. You keep spending it on others, always helping others. Whether it was guiding Black folks to refuge on the Underground Railroad or providing care for her elderly, sick, and homeless neighbors, through the Harriet Tubman Home for the Aged and Indigent Negroes, Harriet Tubman never stopped helping others. This was her life's work, and she contributed so much of her own money to keep it running. Harriet's relationship with the Sewards, be it with Francis or William, provided her with access to the resources she desperately needed in order to provide for others in this way. The relationship between the Sewards and the Tubmans was deep and layered. Here's maybe my favorite way to try to get at what these two families meant to each other. And it's the story of Margaret Stewart. Stewart was a young African-American girl, about 10, 11, 12 years old, whom Harriet Tubman brings back with her on her final journey to the South before she becomes actively involved in the Civil War. Margaret is someone whose genealogy is today still a bit of a mystery. People in the national parks talk about how she could have been a secret biological daughter. There's reason to think that Tubman never believed slavery was really going to be over. So to protect the child, she would never reveal her maternity. She was technically still, through the Civil War years, an enslaved person because she had illegally self-liberated. Some historians say that Margaret may have been a niece of Harriet Tubman's or an acquaintance's daughter. And Margaret's own daughter would later write that her mom was Aunt Harriet's favorite niece. No one really knows for sure, but regardless of the exact relation, she was a young Black girl whose care and well-being was entrusted to Harriet Tubman. Tubman brought her to Auburn. She brings her here in the spring of 1862 and deposits her with the Seward family, initially with Frances's older sister, Lizette, who lives in Auburn. And then Lizette brings her here, where she and Frances raise her together during the war years. They give her use of the carriage. She's treated like a part of the family. There's a warmth I think you can feel when you walk both houses and touch these places where they resided. The relationship between Harriet Tubman and Frances Seward is one that's defined by actions more than words, by the very real ways that these two women work together for liberation and justice. And in some ways, it has to be. Because although Frances wrote a ton of letters filled with details about her day-to-day life and first-hand accounts of what life was like in 19th century America, there isn't too much specifically about her relationship with Harriet Tubman available in the archives. And Jeff says that part is simply because of timing. Sadly, Frances dies just about two months after the end of the Civil War, so a time when she might have reflected openly, safely, she's not breaking federal law anymore, there's no more need for an Underground Railroad, slavery has ended. We don't get that access to her. Same with Fanny Seward. 
She dies the following year, so these two women, who would have been side by side as Harriet Tubman becomes a part of this community, might have told us all about that, aren't around to give us their insights. But even still, there's no doubt that the Sewards played an important part in the community that Harriet built here in Auburn. In the 50-plus years that Harriet Tubman lived in the city, she nurtured so many connections and was a crucial pillar of strength in the community. This is a legacy that many Auburnians can reach back and connect themselves to. Our current mayor has told stories about how his grandparents' children would go to Tubman's farm. She was still alive and she would tell stories. I think she was famous in Auburn for her hospitality, adventures of her bravery on the Underground Railroad. So there's not quite living memory, but we're not that far removed from it because she died in 1913, of Harriet Tubman being a fixture in this community. She lived here for 50 years and enough families can sort of touch on to that. There's another place where you can feel Harriet's presence, the New York State Equal Rights Heritage Center. About a mile north of Harriet's home and right next door to the Seward's home. The first thing that will greet you when you walk into our courtyard is a beautiful bronze statue of Harriet Tubman. And that is really the centerpiece. She's overlooking downtown Auburn. And then when you walk into the visitor center, you're greeted by the opening to our exhibit. Courtney Ray Casper is the Visitor Experience Manager at the New York State Equal Rights Heritage Center. It's not in chronological order, it's devised by content, and they broke that into color coding. So obviously green would be abolition, purple is women's rights, blue is human rights. So as you're moving through this beautiful, very modern architecture, building and you have these large glass windows that frame all of our surrounding historic sites like the Seward House Museum, Westminster Presbyterian Church, almost like portraits so that you want to go out and experience that. And so the one thing I do really love about our exhibit is it's a mix of static exhibits but also interactive. So there are actually historic speeches that you can listen to, songs that you can listen to, and we have video timelines. So it's a very interactive exhibit. And then you're also surrounded in this extremely beautiful piece of architecture that was created by N Architects out of Brooklyn. Auburn wasn't just a hub for abolitionist organizing. It was also a place where folks were active in the women's rights movement and human rights movements at large. What many Americans don't know is that Harriet was just as much a part of these organizations as she was the abolitionist movement. So it's just an interesting place, I think, where there was this convergence of free thought and free thinking and people who really were bold and wanted to do what was right. And I am a true believer that you can still feel that energy here in Auburn. There's an author that spoke not too long here in Auburn, Phil Hesser, and he likened it to a vortex and that you can still kind of feel that energy where these titans of change were here and they were doing things for the good of others. Do you see a parallel to what was going on back in the day to now in Auburn, New York? Do you see those connections and collaborations happening in the community? Yeah, absolutely. It's really interesting because before this building was built, which was in 2018, there had never really been a pride celebration. This has allowed us to bring that kind of community gathering and programming into the downtown core, which has 
been really important and special, not only for visitors, but predominantly for our own locals and our community. Auburn's 2019 Pride Celebration drew hundreds to the New York State Equal Rights Heritage Center to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising, an event that lots of people considered to be a watershed moment for LGBTQIA rights in America. There was rainbow-themed food, drinks, vendors, the whole nine yards. And even outside of the Pride Celebration, the center continues to be a space for Auburnians to ground themselves in the history of the city that they call home. And the role that figures like Harriet Tubman, along with Francis and William Seward, played in it. Harriet built a beautiful life for herself and so many others in Auburn, one that was rooted in justice, liberation, and love. But of course, that didn't protect her from the harsh realities of the anti-Black world that surrounded her. Day in and day out, her life was full of trials. Even in Auburn, the place she chose to call home, and the surrounding areas in the Northeast. I don't want to whitewash it too much. I don't think it was easy. I don't think it was perfect. Harriet Tubman had to hustle. Harriet Tubman had to work really hard until her old age to just make ends meet. I'm sure she was met with more than her share of opposition. This was no utopia, but there was a presence of a sort of core, critical core, a nucleus of Albanians who opened up their minds, their homes, their hearts, and that continued outward through several generations of Auburn sort of supporting her. This is the part of Harriet Tubman's story that is really difficult to sit with. And it feels like it's one that we see over and over in the lives of Black women in America, past and present. Even Harriet Tubman, the Moses of her people, a woman that so many people respected and looked up to, still struggled to make ends meet and had to work really, really hard, even in old age. But despite this, she found a way to make things work. She was always helping people out. She was always giving money. She was this little petite woman, and no one thought much of her, but she made such a big impact. Justin Harris is a tour guide here in Auburn. He gives tours of Harriet Tubman's life and legacy in the city. When Justin was training to become a tour guide, he heard a story about Harriet Tubman that would stick with him. She had a toothache, and this is relevant, I promise, and it was really bad. And it was so bad it gave her a headache, and eventually she just took a rock and busted the tooth right out of her mouth, like off of a whim. She was headstrong. She was one of the toughest, roughest people. She has so many stories and anecdotes and, I guess, tales, because some of them aren't very true. <laughs> and you'll find out she has a lot of fairy tales told about her. But the ones that are true still sound like fairy tales. Justin's tours take folks deeper into the life of Harriet Tubman, zigzagging around Auburn to tell the story of what the city meant to Harriet and the role the city played in the fight for Black freedom. As I'm sure you can imagine, it's a lot to cover. But Justin wants people to walk away with one thing after his tours. I want them to... <laughs> it sounds counterproductive, but I want them to be lost in a sort of way. I want to break a stigma or stereotype or something in them 
so that they know that there's more out there that they could get because Harriet she grew up with chains around her neck she grew up in bondage being whipped being beaten and people telling her that she was nothing and then she escaped that and she looked back and said i got to go back for other people she didn't sit down and say i'm too tired to do anything else with my life i'm just going to hide and be little old harriet no she saw there was more and she took more and more and more until she couldn't take any more and i want people to feel that in my mind i see a line and over that line i see green fields and lovely flowers and beautiful white women with their arms stretched out to me over that line but i can't seem to get there no how i can't seem to get over that line that was harriet tubman in the 1800s that was viola davis giving a powerful acceptance speech at the 2015 emmy awards On the next Walk in Her Footsteps, we'll be talking to descendants of Harriet and hear the stories that were passed down from generation to generation. I would like to thank my guests, Jeff Ludwig, Director of Education at the Seward House, Courtney Ray Casper, Visitor Experience Manager at the New York State Equal Rights Heritage Center, and Justin Harris, Auburn Tour Guide. You can tour the Seward House Museum, including the basement kitchen where passengers on the Underground Railroad would have stayed, by visiting SewardHouse.org and booking a guided tour. Walk in Her Footsteps is produced by Weststone Media in partnership with Tour Cayuga. Thank you to the Walk in Her Footsteps team, lead producer Tonina Saputo, managing producer Marvin Ya, audio editor Martino Cardoso, and associate producer Danya Abdel Hamid. Torque Yuga would like to thank the Auburn community who carries on Harriet Tubman's legacy. For more information on Harriet Tubman's life in New York State, visit torqueyuga.com. I'd also like to thank Whetstone founder Stephen Satterfield, Whetstone Radio Collective head of podcast Celine Glazier, sound engineer Max Kotelchuk, music director Catherine Yang, associate producer Quentin Lebeau, Production Coordinator, Shabnam Ferdosi, and Sound Intern, Simon Lavender. Cover art created by Whetstone Art Director, Alexandra Bowman. You can learn more about all things happening at Whetstone at whetstonemagazine.com. I'm Bianca Lewis, and thank you for listening. <laughs>